thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, episode 9.2, The Sith Reformation. Last time, we saw the galaxy declined into space feudalism by 1100 BBY and told the story of our knight errant, Kara Holt. This time, we meet the Brotherhood of Darkness, the Army of Light, and, most importantly, Darth Bane. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a little bit of truth in Legends. Uh, Canon Alert 47, The Great Sith War. Uh, We've got three quick Canon Alerts, uh, each of which comes from Charles Soule's 2021 novel, Light of the Jedi. Uh, This is the first release from the High Republic era, which is set in 232 BBY, so 200 years before the Phantom Menace. Uh, The first of these canonizations is The Great Sith War. In Light of the Jedi, a Jedi Master says that the Order, quote, once waged and won the Great Sith War, end quote. Although other pieces of the Great Sith War have been canonized, like the Krath, Exar Kun, and Ulit Keldroma, none of them has been attached to the Great Sith War in canon yet. It's just a name, but it's also another very specific reference to a big event from the Old Republic in Legends. Canon Alert 48, the first Jedi Purge. On the very same page as the Great Sith War reference, we have what appears to be a veiled reference to the first Jedi Purge, which occurred from 3955 to 3951, eliminated all but nine members of the Jedi, and served as a major plot point in KOTOR 2. In Soul's Light of the Jedi novel, one Jedi Master states that, quote, There have been times in our history when the Order was reduced to but a handful of members, end quote. That obviously doesn't reference the Purge by name, but the first Jedi Purge is the only time in Legends that the Order is reduced to a handful of members. At its lowest point, the Jedi had eight total members by the end of the first Jedi Purge, so it's either a reference to the first Jedi Purge, something new, or maybe it was just a turn of phrase. We can't say for sure, but we'll count it anyway. Then we have Canon Alert 49, the Manan Kulto Crisis. The final reference is even more circumspect than the last, but again, we're inclined to count it. In Light of the Jedi, several characters are discussing which groups could have perpetrated the great disaster the novel's main event. One of the pos- possible culprits listed are the Selkath from Manan due to the increased availability of the healing substance Bakna, putting them out of business around 232 BBY. Though Kolto isn't mentioned by name, this seems like a fairly explicit, if veiled, reference to the fact that Kolto and Bakna were competitors in Legends, and Manan relied upon Kolto's sales to keep their economy functioning. This was a background concern and the subject of a couple of side-question KOTOR, Although this reference is more to a theme that was present in the Old Republic and doesn't reference Kulto by name, we figured it deserved inclusion since Manan, the Selkath, and Kulto were all created for KOTOR. The New Sith Wars, Part 2. The Light and Darkness War and the Rise of Bane. 1031 to 1000 BBY. When we last left our narrative... 
knight-errant Kara Holt was doing her best to protect the people of the Grimani sector from the oppressive fiefdoms of the Sith Lord Vilia Calamandra and her numerous would-be heirs. As we saw, Kara spent the entire year of 1032 liberating, saving, and otherwise aiding the people in the the people in the one sector she could protect. In the end, Kara Holt foiled a plan by the Sith Lord Odian to use an ancient Sith artifact to wipe out all life in the galaxy and greatly destabilized Sith rule in the Grimani sector. After 1032 BBY, in the end of the Night Errant series, Kara Holt leaves our story forever, and we have no record of her whereabouts thereafter. We will miss Kara; she was a good Jedi. However, now we must move on to the move on from the Grimani sector and zoom back out to take a look at the wider galaxy at the end of 1032. To sum up the overall state of the galaxy, quite bluntly, they were fucked. Who was fucked? They, everyone, everyone was fucked. The Jedi were fucked because they simply couldn't hold up hold up the weight of every problem in the galaxy simultaneously. Since the Battle of Misra in 1466, and especially since the beginning of the Republic Dark Age in 1100, the Jedi have propped up the Old Republic. But they couldn't shoulder the weight of the entire Republic government and defend against the Sith simultaneously, so the Jedi were fucked. These Sith were fucked because the lack of centralized infrastructure meant the Republic's withdrawal and collapse of the hypernet of the hollow net broke them into their fiefdoms like the Grumani sector. At this time, the Sith were less dark lords and more feudal lords fighting over inheritances in backwater sectors. They couldn't continue in this way and hope to rule the galaxy as a Sith empire. They would need a systematic overhaul or they would continue to fracture ad infinitum. Like their light side counterparts, the Sith were fucked. And finally, the Old Republic was fucked because of literally everything that has happened up to this point in the narrative. The Galactic Republic has stood as a political entity for more than 24,000 years, but it doesn't have much time left. It only persists now because the Jedi have exhausted themselves to prop it up, and when the Jedi falter, the Republic will die. The Old Republic was, in every conceivable way, fucked. After the events of the Night Errant series end, the timeline goes dark again. Between 1031 and 1010 BBY, we know broad strokes, but only have a firm date for one event. In 1026 BBY, a Force-sensitive human male named Dessel was born on the Outer Rim, a Sith-controlled world called Apartos. Apatros. In the future, Dessel will, will discard his given name and take up a new Sith moniker. Darth Bane. But we will wait to do a full character profile on Bane until we meet him in the narrative. In the meantime, let's catch up with the Republic Dark Age, which is already in progress. As the years passed, the situation continued to deteriorate across the Republic. The military was insufficient for any tasks, and the government couldn't even manage its new, smaller territorial boundaries. Because the Republic lacked universal healthcare of any kind, the Kandorian Plague spread from planet to planet and region to region. Every few years, it would show up to kill a new generation who hadn't lived through the last outbreak and thus hadn't developed immunity to it. Not unlike the way the Black Death repeatedly ravaged Europe and Asia in the Middle Ages. By 1010, the Republic faced military personnel shortages in addition to spotty transportation and communications caused by the breakdown of the Holonet. 
Ken Alert 50, Republic Dark Age. The Republic Dark Age has been canonized as the fall of the Old Republic by several sources, including a season a season two episode of the Clone Wars and a season three episode of Rebels. Though the general outline is the same, much of the original uh, much of the original story has already been changed. A common theme for the series nine canon alerts. In Legends, the Galactic Republic government never actually falls. It's just propped up by the Jedi until 1000 BBY and then reorganized by the Ruslan Reformations. Whereas the Sith never conquer Coruscant during the new Sith Wars in Legends, they do capture the Republic's capital world in, in canon. During the decades-long fall of the Old Republic in canon, the Sith invade and occupy Coruscant for an unknown period of time. However, the Jedi were able to reclaim Coruscant and the Jedi Temple at some time during the Jedi-Sith War. Again, we don't even know how long the Jedi-Sith War lasted in canon. We just know that it happened and then it marks and that the end of the Jedi-Sith War roughly... We just know that it happened and that the end of the Jedi-Sith War roughly 1,000 years before the prequels also marks the end of the fall of the Old Republic. God, that's hard to say. Why did I write that like that? That's where the similarities to the new Sith Wars and Legends become more apparent. Much like the Republic Dark Age ends with the final battle of the new Sith Wars, the fall of the Old Republic ends with the final battle of the Jedi-Sith War, after which the Old Republic is reorganized into the Galactic Republic according to the requirements of the Rusan Reformations, just like in Legends. The Second Sith Civil War Amidst the backdrop of the crumbling Republic and overtaxed Jedi Order, the Sith have been having their own problems. Since roughly 1100 BBY, Sith warlords have been in a near-constant state of civil war. Now, how exactly this differs from the previous 900 years, where Sith warlords were also in a near-constant state of civil war, is anyone's guess. But they tell us the second Sith civil war started around 1100, so that's what we'll go with. Actually, the Second Sith Civil War is a name we've given to it because it's usually just called the Sith Civil War, but we know one of those already happened in the aftermath of events of KOTOR. So we call it the Second. Because the Sith had never coalesced around a centralized government or planet during the first 900 years of the new Sith Wars, they were at the mercy of the Republic in many ways. They piggybacked off the Republic-maintained holonet for comms and to coordinate travel, which worked fine until the Republic did the unthinkable and withdrew. The Sith had no way to handle the collapse of the Republic-run holonet, which had the add-on effect of kneecapping both interstellar commerce and interstellar travel during the Republic Dark Age. Remember, when the holonet went offline in 1100, most sectors lost the ability to enter hyperspace outside the sector, because those coordinates were provided via the holonet. Even pilots or locals who knew the coordinates rarely used them to leave their sector because they of the hazard of getting stranded or worse. The issue of travel could be mitigated somewhat because hyperspace jumps given, within a given sector were reasonably safe and slower. Sub-light speed travel could be used if necessary. As we saw last episode, the Sith and others could navigate the hyperspace lanes within the Grumani sector easily enough, but leaving the sector was another issue entirely. 
So they could travel somewhat, but the Sith couldn't mitigate the loss of the holonet for general communication and sector-to-sector commerce. The moment the holonet was taken offline, neighboring sectors lost all communication with one another except via courier ships, which were created to surmount this issue. Still, if no one can effectively communicate or travel outside their own sector, then they certainly can't maintain a functional economy. The Sith had no way to deal with the lack of communications or economy except to splinter down to the sector level and rule them as feudal nation-states. This is how the Second Sith Civil War became an ongoing sector-by-sector fight between Sith feudal lords. The once mighty order had gone from challenging the Republic for domination of the galaxy to fighting amongst themselves in darkened podunk sectors. We got a good look at the Second Sith Civil War last episode during the First and Second Charge Matrica. Knight Errant, it would seem, serves as a microcosm of the larger issues going on in the galaxy at the time, and specifically those plaguing the Sith. Even if you win and defeat your rivals, your reward is ruling over one insignificant sector that serves as a stopover for travelers heading to Iriadu and Mustafar. With no holonet, no commerce, and greatly reduced travel capacity, there was little chance for them to unite, something the Sith aren't really predisposed to doing in the first place. The Sith continued fighting their civil war in this manner for 90 years and showed showed no signs of stopping unless someone from outside the warring Sith territories intervened. Someone who wasn't hampered by a lack of information about the state of the wider galaxy and who wasn't tied to one sector due to an inability to navigate hyperspace. In short, the Sith needed someone from the Jedi to leave the Order and unite them through conquest and slaughter, as is the way of the Sith. In the end, that role was filled by a man named Scare Khan. Character Profile, Scare Khan Born in the slums of Coruscant, Scare Khan's Force sensitivity was discovered at an early age and he joined the Jedi Order shortly thereafter. Even as a young Padawan, Khan was charismatic, a shrewd military tactician, and highly skilled in the use of the Force. In short order, Scare Khan became a beacon of hope to members of the Jedi Council who believed that he could be the one to end the intractable wars with the Sith. Little did they know how right they were. As Khan grew older, he became convinced that the Republic and Jedi were at fault for the fractured state of the galaxy. He saw the chaos prevailing in the galaxy as a byproduct of thousands of years of neglect, exploitation, and corruption, which it was. Unfortunately for the entire galaxy, while Khan did understand the wider causes of these problems, his solution was far worse. That wouldn't happen until later, though. In the meantime, Scare Khan was promoted to the rank of Jedi Knight and gained more followers and admirers within the Order. As a knight, Khan perfected the rare force ability known as battle meditation and became particularly skilled with mind tricks. Age did little to blunt Khan's radical ideas about the source of the galaxy's problems, so the Jedi Order did the one thing they could think of to moderate his influence. They promoted him to the rank of Master and gave him a seat on the Jedi Council. Wait, what? That's right, the Council believed they could soften Scare Khan by giving him more power and influence over the Order. After his promotion, Khan formed a group of loyal knights named the Brotherhood. In early 1010 BBY, 
Khan took the Brotherhood and traveled to the outlying sectors with the supposed intention of wiping out the Sith. At first, all seemed well as the Brotherhood defeated or subdued numerous Sith warlords, and Khan's efforts earned commendations from the Jedi Council. But they had been deceived. In late 1010, Khan and his followers officially severed ties with the Jedi Order and revealed themselves as the Brotherhood of Darkness. Khan hadn't been defeating the Sith, he had been defeating rivals and consolidating power all along. Scare Khan took the title Dark Lord of the Sith, but went by Lord Khan instead of taking the Sith moniker Darth. He will never be Darth. The Brotherhood of Darkness Although Lord Khan will still be fighting recalcitrant Sith Lords until around 1007 BBY, the Second Sith Civil War officially ends in 1010 with the formation of the Brotherhood of Darkness. In hindsight, it was obvious to anyone who could fog a mirror that Skirkon's plan to deal with the Sith had been a power grab the whole time. Even as a Jedi Padawan, Khan had been almost obsessed with subduing the anarchy outside the Republic, and his status as a Jedi gave him access to enough information to do something about it. He poured over details of hundreds of sectors, recorded hyperspace travel coordinates, and assembled a group of Jedi utterly loyal to his vision. And Khan, being a master tactician, knew how to piece all of this information together to create a plan not just to subdue the Sith, but also to rule them. The Sith were scattered, having been bound to individual sectors for 90 years after the Republic Dark Age began, but they were massive in number. When the Brotherhood formed and Khan led them to face the Sith in 1010, the Jedi should have known what was happening and opposed him then. Instead, Khan and his Brotherhood spent months binding Sith, Lords, Sith warlords to their cause through victory in battle. As they, continued, Khan, as they continued, Khan was able to begin piecing together something that resembled a Sith Empire. Eventually, they couldn't keep up the charade any longer, and the Brotherhood became the Brotherhood of Darkness, openly declaring themselves Sith. However, Khan had studied the Dark Side and the Sith for years, and he knew that they constantly fell to infighting. He vowed to fix this problem by proclaiming that all proclaiming all Sith to be equal in the Brotherhood and forbidding any members to take the Darth title, which Khan viewed as the source of all historical conflict within the Sith. He even gave up sole ownership of the title Dark Lord of the Sith, instead giving every member the title of Dark Lord. Despite this, it was clear to all, including some of the Brotherhood, that Khan was the first amongst equals. Khan called his philosophy rule by the strong, meaning that the strongest, strongest Sith should get the greatest rewards. In this way, Lord Khan went about uniting the Sith under his rule, and by 1007 BBY, the Brotherhood of Darkness ruled most of the outlying sectors and had more than 20,000 members. 20,000 Dark Lords. An Army of Light Despite how it may seem, not every Jedi was taken in by Skir Khan's charisma and the obvious facade that was the Brotherhood. In 1010, a Jedi Lord named Hoth began creating his own militia to oppose the Brotherhood called the Army of Light. 
Initially, the Jedi Council would not get involved because they still believed Khan's ruse. Lord Hoth, however, recognized that Khan was falling to the dark side and pieced together the Army of Light, which was initially composed of hundreds of Jedi Lords and whatever retainers and supplies they could muster. The Army of Light also received a large support from organized militias on Corellia, Kularin, and Camparas. By 1008 BBY at the latest, their numbers swelled considerably when the Jedi Council threw their support behind the Army of Light after the Brotherhood of Darkness declared for the Sith. Much of the Republic military also defected to Lord Hoth, bringing along ships and supplies as they could. Lord Hoth organized these soldiers into units commanded by Jedi Lords, and the feudal Army of Light grew into a formidable fighting force. Hoth's second-in-command was a Jedi named Pernikar, as the next, and the next was a Jedi named Valentine Farfala. Though Pernikar will fall in battle, leaving Hoth and Farfala as the two main leaders later. With that, our forces are now set and the final war of the new Sith Wars can begin, even though the first confirmed battle isn't until, 10, until 1006 BBY, in universe histories date the start of the Light and Darkness War to 1010 BBY. The Light and Darkness War will last for 10 years and lay waste to much of the galaxy in the process. Tens of thousands of Jedi will do battle with more than 20... I was in Sith in a conflict so devastating that, by the end, the Jedi will be reduced to conscripting four sensitive children into its military, and the Sith will be left picking from the scraps of the Jedi. Though it is a brutal conflict, we don't know much about most of the battles during the Light and Darkness War, except that they occurred. Most of what we know happens near the end of the war, and most of the rest of the time is introducing Darth Bane and his development of the Rule of Two. That's what we will spend most of the rest of this episode focusing on, but first we need to do two quick character profiles on Lord Hoth and Valentine Farfala. Character Profile Lord Hoth For much of his life, Lord Hoth was known by his birth name, Roland. As a young Jedi, Roland had flowing blonde hair and dreamed of being the Jedi who would finally crush the Sith. As a young knight, Roland gained notoriety for freeing up the Corellian trade spine Hyperlane from marauding Sith pirates, earning him the title Knight of Hoth. Over time, he would become simply known as Hoth. He trained many students, including Tal and Johan Othun, but his heroics were usually overshadowed by those of Skir Khan. At some point before 1010, Hoth was promoted to master and given the title Jedi Battlemaster as the greatest lightsaber duelist in the Order. He took up a, he took up a post in a Jedi baronial sector and became known as Lord Hoth. However, much of Hoth's success was downplayed by the Jedi High Council, who appeared to just be incredibly shitty at their jobs. Hoth was later promoted to sit on the Jedi Council just before or at the same time as Skir Khan. Lord Hoth was not fooled by Khan's claims about the Brotherhood and began building the Army of Light in secret in 1010 and then did so openly. Eventually, Lord Hoth's leadership was rewarded and the Council threw their weight behind his Army of Light by 1008. 
When we meet Hoth, he is a grizzled war veteran well into his 50s or 60s with long gray hair, some of which is worn in a top knot. He wields a blue lightsaber and wears silvery shoulder and chest armor. Character Profile Valentine Farfalla. Time to introduce one of the fanciest lads to ever join the Jedi Order, the half-Bothan, half-human hybrid named Valentine Farfalla, a Jedi with Bothan hooves on his lower body and a human chest and face on his upper body. Farfalla believed in keeping up appearances. He wore fancy clothes, gold, adopted aristocratic mannerisms, and even flew around the flagship that looked like an open-air galley from the Middle Ages. But he was also brave and a seasoned fighter, having inherited his father's Jedi lordship over a sector and defending it from Sith. When Lord Hoth calls his banners to join the Army of Light, Farfla will be one of the first to answer the call in 1010. Despite becoming one of Hoth's top generals, Valentine was often at loggerheads with the gruff, no-nonsense Hoth, though he was also always on good terms with Pernikar. Later on, their relationship will sour to the point that it almost costs the Jedi the Light and Darkness War, but that's not until the final months of the war. When we meet Lord Farfly, he's a strapping young hybrid with long, curly, golden hair, blue eyes, and is described as attractive. He wears gold-plated armor, is fearless in battle, dons a cape, and wields a blue lightsaber. He's one of the biggest dandies in the history of the franchise, and we absolutely mean that as a compliment. Eventually, Farfla will become one of the authors of the Rusan Reformation, cementing his legacy as one of the most important figures in galactic history. And then he's going to die like a chump, but we'll get there later. Darth Bane, Path of Destruction, written by Drew Carpishian and published in 2006. At last, it's time to begin the confusing chronology of the Darth Bane novel trilogy. The novel's prologue occurs in 1006, just after the Battle of Korriban, but the titular character isn't there yet. He won't even join the Brotherhood for another three years. Path of Destruction then jumps forward to 1003, where we finally meet the man who will become Bane and learn a little of his backstory. The novel then follows Bane as he's discovered to be Force-sensitive, sent to train on Korriban, and becomes disenchanted with the Brotherhood's direction and Khan's interpretations of Sith doctrine. It then covers Bane's, transforma- uh, Bane's formation of the Rule of Two over the next three years, with the Light and Darkness War playing out in the background. This necessarily splits the narrative in two, as we must follow both the events of the Light and Darkness War and Bane doing his own thing simultaneously. Finally, the novel ends in 1000 BBY with the Seventh Battle of Rusan, which marks the supposed destruction of the Sith and the end of the Old Republic. But wait, the narrative is about to get even more confusing because three unrelated stories occur during the events of Path of Destruction. One short story and two one-shot comics. Plus, we won't even get to the end of Path of Destruction this episode because we're going to cover the 6th and 7th Battles of Rusan in their entirety next time since they're such a big deal. In order to deal with all of this, we're going to try and cover the Light and Darkness War and Bane's adventures in Religious Reformation more or less contemporaneously up to the Sixth Battle of Rusan. 
Of course, we will focus a little more on Bane for obvious reasons. We will save the final battles. We will save the final two battles of Rusan and the subsequent Rusan Reformation for next episode since they are such a big deal. We will also cover those three stories that occurred during Path of Destruction next time. As if all that wasn't confusing enough, Kevin J. Anderson's short story, Bane of the Sith, occurs at this time as well, though as we noted in episode 9.0, Bane of the Sith was superseded by Carpegian's Bane trilogy. So without further ado, let's start the Light and Darkness War. The Battle of Korriban For the first two or three years after the Light and Darkness Wars began, there appeared to have only been a few sparse battles as the two sides danced around one another. That all changed in 1006, when the Brotherhood decided to retake the ancient Sith homeworld of Korriban. During the early years, Khan had attracted members of the Army of Light who defected like Lord Kopex, who fought with Farfalla in some early battles before joining the Sith. Despite abandoning most outlying sectors, the Republic still kept control of Korriban to keep the Sith from building a power base there. The planet was garrisoned by over a hundred Jedi and thousands of soldiers, but none of them stood a chance. It was a move reminiscent of the true Sith invasion and retaking of Korriban at the outset of the Great Galactic War before Star Wars The Old Republic. Only this time, none of the defenders would survive none of the defenders survive, and we don't get a cool cinematic about it. In 1006, Lord Khan, backed by his top lieutenants, Lords Kolpex and Cordis, invaded Korriban with, met with a massive host, overwhelming the Jedi-slash-Republic defenders and putting all of them to the laser sword. When the Battle of Korriban was over, the Sith had re-established their connection to Korriban, and Lord Khan ordered the Sith Academy to be reopened. For the first time in 2,600 years, the Sith controlled Korriban again. The Brotherhood's victory in the Battle of Korriban also served as a dire warning of the power that the United Sith posed to the rest of the galaxy. Winning at Korriban also served to add more defectors from the Jedi and Republic to the Brotherhood of Darkness. Drawn by Lord Khan's charisma and obvious battlefield prowess, many left to serve the dark side. For the next two years, the Brotherhood attempted to assert control over the rest of Old Sith space in the northeastern part of the galaxy, but the results were mixed. By 1004, we begin to get the names of a number of battles, but not much more. In that year, the Army of Light won victories at Hoth, Dromonkas, and Malrev IV, while the Brotherhood prevailed at Ando, Dorian, and Mindor. A dozen other battles were fought around 1004, but they only show up as names in reference books, and we know little else until the Battle of Kashyyyk. The Battle of Kashyyyk. By 1003 BBY, the Brotherhood of Darkness was beginning to lose the Light and Darkness War. Though the Brotherhood won a few victories, most of those battles, circa 1004, went to the Army of Light, and Khan's united front began to show signs of cracking apart. While the Brotherhood was winning and the while the Brotherhood was winning and the glory was plentiful, the Sith kept their descent in check. Though even, the, though even that often required Khan to use the force for mental persuasion, persuasion to keep his dark side alliance intact. Such was his power that only a few select members could resist Khan's mind tricks, including Kopex and others we will meet shortly. 
But even Khan's prodigious force abilities had its limits, and the Brotherhood needed a victory to maintain their cohesion. Being a brilliant battlefield tactician, Lord Khan massed his forces to attack the strategic Republic stronghold of Kashyyyk in the Mid-Rim. If Kashyyyk could be secured, the Brotherhood could use it as a staging point for further attacks on the Republic and Core Worlds. However, the invasion did not initially go as planned. When the Brotherhood landed, the Republic and Jedi melted back into the planet's massive forest using their Wookiee allies as guides and warriors. For weeks, the fighting went on in the Rosher trees and branches high above Kashyyyk, and the Sith lost troops faster than they could replace them. But the tides of battle turned in the Brotherhood's favor thanks to an elite group of soldiers known as the Gloomwalkers. During the fighting, the Gloomwalkers had gotten lost in the forest, but a former Cortosis miner named Dessel took command and led his squad on a heroic three-day journey to rejoin their Sith comrades. The return of the Gloomwalkers boosted morale and gave the Brotherhood a much-needed advantage in the fighting. With their fighting spirit renewed, Khan poured enough soldiers onto Kashyyyk that they overwhelmed the Jedi-slash-Republic forces. After weeks of fighting and tens of thousands of casualties, the Brotherhood of Darkness won the Battle of Kashyyyk. Suddenly, the near-mutinous Sith Lords fell in line, and Lord Khan was once again in control. In the aftermath, Dessel was promoted to Sergeant of the Gloomwalkers, and the remaining Army of Light fled to Trandosha. Character Profile Darth Bane As we noted earlier, the Force-sensitive human male who would become known as Darth Bane was born in 1026 BBY on the Outer Rim world of Apatros. Unlike most of the Force users we encounter who are found at a young age, Bane's Force-sensitivity wasn't discovered until he's 24 years old. Dessel was born the son of an alcoholic, abusive father named Hurst and a mother who died in childbirth. For the rest of his life, Hurst blamed his son for his wife's death and later blamed his son for any problem he faced in life. Dessel's only friend was the local cantina owner, a Nemoidian named Groshek. At 16, Dessel began working in the Cortosis mines where his father worked and was constantly antagonized by the other miners who were friends of his father. Hurst had already taken to calling his son the bane of my existence and then simply called him Bane. Hurst did this openly so much that the other miners began calling the young man by this new nickname. In 1008 BBY, when Dessel was 18, Hurst got more drunk and violent than usual, and Dessel stood up for himself for the first time. Hurst beat his son until his ribs cracked, but Dessel endured it, and later that night envisioned his father dying after a giant hand squeezed Hurst's heart until it burst. The next morning, Hurst was found dead of what appeared to be a heart attack. Unbeknownst to all, Bane had claimed his first victim. After this, Dessel gained courage and stood up for himself five years later. In 1003 BBY, Dessel once again unknowingly tapped into the dark side of the Force, this time to defeat a smug Republic ensign in a tense Sabacc game with a 10,000 credit prize. Groshek warned Dessel to lay low because it seemed that Dessel had won by cheating, which was true even if it was unintentional. Sure enough, the Ensign felt like he'd been scammed and confronted Dessel along with two buddies. The Ensign attempted to kill Dessel with a knife, but the miner reacted too quickly and stabbed the Ensign in the throat. After this, Dessel had a price on his head in the Republic, and so Groshek smuggled him off 
to Apatros to join the Sith. Dessel started out as a grunt, but quickly worked his way up into the Gloomwalkers, taking decisive action during the Battle of Kashyyyk. When we meet him, Bane is a bald, 23-year-old human male with olive skin and extraordinary yet unrealized force power. Force sensitivity discovered. Days after the Battle of Kashyyyk ended, the Brotherhood of Darkness followed the Army of Light to the nearby world of Trandosha. The Sith landed, engaging the Army of Light in the Battle of Hiskor, uh, one of the few battles in Star Wars named after a city and not a planet or moon. Initially, the local unaligned Trandoshans used daring and brutal night attacks to defend their home, killing Jedi and Sith alike. After a couple of days, both sides were down to half strength from fighting one another and losing soldiers to the Trandoshans. Lord Khan then poured 20 total units from Kashyyyk into the fighting, which assured the Brotherhood's victories. victory. Using overwhelming numbers, the Brotherhood brutally suppressed the Trandoshans, who either begrudgingly joined the Sith or returned to protect their homes. The Brotherhood then crushed the remaining Jedi, leveling the city of Hiskor in the process. After less than a week, the Battle of Hiskor was over, and the Sith secured a vital staging area in the Mid-Rim. In 1002 BBY, the Brotherhood of Darkness followed that up by attacking the Republic manufacturing world, Fasira. The Battle of Fasira is notable for exactly two reasons. One, the Army of Light lost a battle in which they held the high ground, and two, Dessel was discovered to be Force-sensitive. On Fasira, the Jedi and Republic forces held a hillside citadel that overlooked a valley, making any approach visible. The Gloomwalkers were ordered to assault the Citadel during broad daylight, making it a suicide mission. Their commander, Lieutenant Ulibor, refused to question the orders. An argument ensued, and in the heat of the moment, Dessel knocked Ulibor out with one punch. Dessel took command of the Gloomwalkers and launched the attack at night, surprising the defenders. During the firefight, the Gloomwalkers were blinded by flashbang grenades, but Dessel could still perceive their enemies somehow and killed them with his blaster. With the Citadel cleared, the Brotherhood easily took Fasira's capital city and, an, an, and another victory. In the aftermath, Dessel expected to be court-martialed and executed for rank insubordination, but the ranking officer, Lord Kopex, sensed the man's extraordinary force power and had him enrolled at the Sith Academy on Korriban. The Zeal of a Convert Dessel was shocked to say the least, but readily accepted his place at the Sith Academy and took a new name, as some did upon joining the Sith. Remembering the nickname his father had given him and the rage it caused him, Dessel discarded his given name and took the name Bane. In mid-1002 BBY, that Bane began his training at the age of 24 and quickly surpassed students who had been training on Korriban since birth. Early on, Bane killed another student during a lightsaber duel against the instructions of Kasim, the Sith Academy's blademaster. When Lord Cordris, the Academy's headmaster, learned of Bane's actions, he congratulated the new Sith and ordered Kasim to give him special attention in the future. In spite of the praise, Bane was deeply troubled by his actions, having realized he was responsible for his father's death years earlier. This led to something of a crisis of faith for Bane, who began to doubt his master's teaching and fear the power of the dark side. 
As such, Bane began to lose his connection to the dark side and feared that other students would surpass him. In a fit of pick, Bane rashly challenged the Academy's top student, Serac, to a lightsaber duel and was humiliated for his trouble. This very public loss caused the other students to shun Bane, who became depressed and sought solace in the teachings of the Sith archives. There, Bane found the reassurance he needed and began to regain his confidence through constant study and reflection on the dark side. However, researching the ancient texts had been outlawed, and Bane learned that Lord Khan forbade any Sith in the Brotherhood from taking the title of Darth. From this, Bane began to believe that the Brotherhood had lost their way from the true way of the ancient Sith. Around this time, a new student named Githany arrived on Korriban after defecting from the Jedi. Githany quickly proved to be the top student at the Academy, which caused Bane to ask her for help training in secret. Githany agreed, believing she could use Bane against Serac, her only real competition at the time in late 1001 BBY. While Githany tutored Bane in Force techniques, Kasim gave him private lightsaber combat lessons on orders from Cordris. In short order, Bane mastered many skills and his connection to the dark side returned, and he once again challenged Serac to a duel, easily defeating his, his opponent. Kasim was so impressed, he gifted Bane his Sith Master's old curved hilt lightsaber. Kasim took the lightsaber from his master's dead hands after a personal test of skill. In early 1000 BBY, Bane was called in front of Cordus, who was aware of the secret training with Githany, and ordered Bane to stop studying in the archives. This enraged Bane, who had only grown more suspicious of the Brotherhood's rules and Khan's motives over the past few months. Instead, Bane departed for the Forbidden Valley of the Dark Lords, where he stayed without food or water. In the valley, Bane heard none of the Sith spirits of old, and believing that they had abandoned the Sith and the Brotherhood. Okay, I'm going to start over. In the valley, Bane heard none of the Sith spirits of old, believing that they had abandoned the Sith after the Brotherhood moved away from the true teachings of the Dark Side. Bane came away convinced that the Sith had lost their way and he was going to lead them back to righteousness, so to speak. Two weeks after he left, Bane returned to the Academy ragged and nearly dead from thirst. After recuperation and a back-to-tank, Githany greeted Bane with the news that they were all being promoted to the rank of Dark Lord and sent to the front lines on the world Rusan. This infuriated Bane further as he knew as he knew it was an act of military necessity to keep the number of Sith generals high and not because the students had earned the title. He was then led to the archives by Githany, but, but they were ambushed by Serac and two goons. Githany had secretly sided with Serac, claiming she would help him kill Bane, but when they got to the archives, Githany betrayed Serac by returning Bane's lightsaber. Bane defeated Bane and Githany defeated the goons, and then Bane beheaded Serac, fully giving in to the dark side for the first time. Githany was excited to begin her time in the Brotherhood, but Bane denounced them and refused to travel to Rasan. Bane then nailed his metaphorical 95 thesis to the door of the Sith Academy by storming into Cordis's office, denouncing the Brotherhood and formally taking the title of Darth Bane. Then he stole Cordis's personal starship, the Valken, and left.
just like that. Canon Alert 51, Darth Bane. Darth Bane was canonized by Sacrifice, a 2014 episode of The Clone Wars that aired during the show's sixth season. In the appearance, Bane is voiced by noted Star Wars enthusiast Mark Hamill. In the episode, Darth Bane is conjured by the Force Priestesses and appears to Master Yoda on Moribond, where Yoda seeks to learn how to preserve himself as a Force ghost. Bane's spirit appears and attempts to turn Yoda to the dark side, but the aged Jedi Master refuses and passes one of the tests. During his brief appearance, Bane confirms that he created the Rule of Two to preserve the Sith after their defeat during what becomes known as the Jedi-Sith War. He then propagated his new Sith Order by passing his teaching on to only one apprentice. Later reference books canonized other legends' details about Bane, such as his death, which occurred on Ambria at the hands of his Sith apprentice, Darth Zana. As we've noted before, Darth Bane nearly appeared in the Clone Wars Season 3 earlier as part of the Mortis arc, but both he and Darth Revan were cut because it would have led to confusion for fans. Can alert 52, the rule of two. Unlike almost every canon alert in the series, the rule of two was canonized by one of the films. The rule of two became canon in 1999's The Phantom Menace when Yoda says the Sith, when Yoda says of the Sith, quote, Always two there are, no more, no less, a master and an apprentice. It has since been expounded upon by several sources in canon, and its creation was attributed to Darth Bane, as we just discussed. Bane passed his learning on to Zana, and so on and so forth, and until the Rule of Two was finally brought to fruition in 19 BBY, when Darth Sidious issued Order 66, and the Jedi were destroyed. So, while the creator and final victory of the Rule of Two remain the same in canon, its history changes somewhat. Though we don't yet know how Darth Bane went about creating the Rule of Two in canon, we know it was originally based off the concept of a dyad in the Force, a unique Force bond that sometimes forms between two individuals. Darth Bane found records of this idea in ancient Sith, Sith texts and used it as a model for his own twisted dark side version of the dyad. All of that appeared in the Rise of Skywalker novelization, so it may be superseded by later content, but it is what we have now. The war continues. We will catch up with Darth Bane again momentarily, but while he's been studying the sacred text, the light and darkness war has continued apace. When we left off in nearly 1002, the Brotherhood of Darkness had just won victories at Kashyyyk, Hushkar, and Fasira. Building on that success, the Sith won consecutive victories at Sullust, Hypori, Bespin, and Tanab. The situation in the Republic was quickly deteriorating. By 1002, the Republic could barely keep the lights on and its territory was constantly decreasing. Additionally, the Army of Light was facing worsening personnel shortages as the Kandoran Plague ravaged the galaxy yet again and had begun forced conscription in some instances. The Brotherhood of Darkness was simply too overwhelming for the Army of Light, pouring on superior numbers to turn the tides of victory. Lord Khan has Sith academies spread across half a dozen worlds in addition to Korriban, including Eridonia, Dathomir, Umbara, and Rylan, amongst others. 
For most of the war, they had been pumping out new Sith who were shipped to the front lines to lead and fight. With so many crushing victories in succession, the Republic's boundaries began to shrink again until it was at its smallest territorial extent in 20,000 years. The Republic controlled the core worlds and then the space surrounding major hyperlanes, and that's about it. The Brotherhood of Darkness controlled much of the outer and mid-rims, but much of the galaxy sat in unaligned or contested space. These were systems and regions that had been abandoned by the Republic at some time in the last hundred years that were now left totally unprotected. The Brotherhood, for all its winning, didn't have the logistical and bureaucratic resources necessary to govern or police much of the galaxy. Near the end of 1002, the wars started to shrink exponentially as the Army of Light began to use hit-and-run tactics to chip away at the Brotherhood's personnel, staged at Kashyyyk. Eventually, the Sith discovered that the attacks were being launched from a Republic base on the mid-rim world of Rusan. From this point until the end of the war, Rusan becomes the center of the universe. Location Profile Rusan Originally created for the 1997 video game Jedi, Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2, Rusan is a sleepy little planet just inside the boundary line of the mid-rim. Discovered sometime before 8000 BBY, Rusan was barely colonized for most of its history. In 2200 BBY, Rusan was one of the many worlds claimed by the Mining Guild, though the planet proved to have no useful exploitable resources and was quickly abandoned. Sometime during the New Sith Wars, the Republic built a small hidden military base on Rusan to use as a waypoint. By prior to 1002, Rusan, uh, prior to 1002, Rusan had rolling fields, pleasant streams, and a temperate climate, and was home to a single sentient species known as bouncers. Bouncers are sentient, circular beings covered in green fur that can float on air currents and use their shape to bounce off obstacles, using this as their primary means of locomotion. Uh, bouncers have prehensile tails that they can use to pick up objects, move, pick up objects, move, and ride in the dirt. Their primary means of communication with other species. Though intelligent, bouncers spoke in simple sentences, communicating with one another, and very seldom with other species through telepathy. Unfortunately, all of this bucolic splendor is going to be destroyed by the seven battles that occur on Rusan between 1002 and 1000 BBY. For 998 years, the New Sith War has the New Sith Wars have been a galaxy-wide affair, touching parts of every region. For the last two-ish years, the New Sith Wars will be strictly contained to Rusan. The Sith plan to use it as a staging ground from which they can strike directly at the core worlds and end the war. The Army of Light was thinned out, and a sustained attack on Coruscant would easily topple the Republic. For whatever reason, Rusan would be a better staging area than Kashyyyk, even though the two worlds are basically neighbors, separated by only one sector. Conversely, Lord Hoth saw the Brotherhood saw what the Brotherhood was attempting to do with Rusan, and will muster as much of the army as light uh, as much of the army of light as possible to oppose it. At this point, Hoth sees Rusan as the most important world in the galaxy because if it is lost, the Sith will surely overrun the Republic and create a dark side empire. If you win Rusan, you win the war, and whoever wins the war also wins control of the galaxy.
The Roussan Campaign from late 1002 to mid 1000 BBY, the forces of good and evil will do battle on Roussan seven times. The first two battles occur in space above Roussan as the Brotherhood once again attacked in overwhelming numbers. First, Rusan was a close call for the Sith in which a Jedi Master's use of battle meditation kept the small defending fleet alive and winning for a time. But the Brotherhood's victory was assured when Lord Kopex boarded the Jedi Master's ship and killed her. The first battle of Rusan was over and the Brotherhood had their staging grounds. A few days later, at the end of 1002, the meager army of light forces in the area staged a counterattack, but they were easily defeated. Both first and second Rusan had been Sith victories, and local resistance was crushed, allowing the Brotherhood to finally land forces on Rusan. In 1001, Lord Khan used his newly won staging grounds to launch successful attacks into the Core Worlds, winning victories at Chandrilla and Brental IV. It seemed like the Brotherhood was poised to gain a foothold in the Core Worlds, take Coruscant, and win the war with very little resistance. But the Brotherhood situation was more tenuous than it outwardly appeared. Years of using superior numbers to win victories had whittled down the amount of available combat-ready soldiers significantly. Nearly a decade of war had also taken its toll on Lord Khan, who was beginning to descend into madness, causing some of his generals to quietly question him. They had also yet to face the Army of Light in a battle, up to Third Rusan. The Army of Light had been spread out, trying to put out many fires at once, but Hoth saw the importance of Rusan and consolidated. All too late, Lords Khan and Kopex realized that their victories at Chandrilla and Brental IV had come against skeleton crews left over after Hoth massed his forces. In 1001, with most of the Sith away fighting in the Core Worlds, Lord Hoth unleashed the full power of the Army of Light. In space, the Army of Light flew small starfighters that constantly strafed the much larger Brotherhood fleet, dealing massive damage. On the ground, Lord Hoth led his troops in battle and crushed the understaffed garrison. Seeing the planet was lost, the Brotherhood fleet retreated to rendezvous with Khan and Third Rusan came to an end. It was the first real Army of Light victory in three years and will be considered Lord Hoth's finest hour. However, this is the time when Githany defects from the Jedi, turning over vital intel to Lord Khan before going to Korriban. Very early in 1000 BBY, the Brotherhood launched another invasion beginning the Fourth Battle of Rusan. They were able to land and deployed heavy guns, which nearly battered the Army of Light to submission. But the day was saved by the heroics of Lord Gale and Jedi General Keel Charney, who scaled the embankment and destroyed the heavy guns, though Gale lost his life in the process. The battle continued the very next morning and was over shortly with both sides losing thousands in a slight Jedi victory. Around this time, Lord Hoth ordered that Force-sensitive children as young as 10 be recruited to fill their rapidly depleting ranks. Hoth justified the decision by saying it was better that the kids fight for the Army of Light than be conscripted by the Brotherhood and was consoled by his friend Pernikar, but it was cold comfort. Following 5th Rusan, a small contingent of Army of Light defeated the Brotherhood at Ambria, 
around this time in early 1000, Khan learned of Bane's denunciation of the Brotherhood and his flight from the Sith Academy on Korriban. Githany then arrived on Rusan and informed Khan that Bane was going to Rakata Prime, which she knew thanks to their shared force bond. Khan ordered Kasim to travel to kill the heretical Sith. At this time, Valentin Farfalla also left Rusan on a diplomatic mission to gain more Jedi support. A few hundred recalcitrant Jedi had thus far refused to join the Army of Light, believing it was believing it to be about Haas' personal vendetta. So Master Farfalla left to convince these holdouts to join. Shortly thereafter, in 1000 BBY, the Brotherhood launched another attack, but the Army of Light's guerrilla tactics preserved their dwindling numbers and eventually won the Fifth Battle of Rusan. The Jedi may have won Fifth Rusan, but the Sith fleet successfully blockaded the planet, cutting off reinforcement and supplies. Despite winning four straight battles on Rusan, the Army of Light's situation looked hopeless. The Rule of Two. Finally, we get to Darth Bane's creation of the Rule of Two, the doctrine that will define the Sith for the for a thousand years and spell the eventual downfall of the Jedi. In early 1000 BBY, Bane formally took the title of Darth in violation of Khan's prohibition and then fled the Sith Academy on Korriban, stealing Lord Cordris's ship. Bane jumped to hyperspace and then traveled all the way across the galaxy from its northeastern extent to its furthest western bounds. Bane had discovered the location of Rakata Prime while studying the Sith texts and hoped to find truth there. In his short time on Korriban, Bane had come to believe that the Brotherhood of Darkness was a perversion of true Sith doctrine. They no longer worshipped the dark side as it were, they worshipped the cult of the Brotherhood, or more specifically, the cult of Lord Khan. By the time he arrived on Rakata Prime, Bane had come to the conclusion that the reason the Brotherhood was unable to actually defeat the Jedi was that they strayed from the old ways. It's a very compelling argument, except as we will see next time, it's not really true at all. During Sixth Rusan, the Brotherhood will be ready to deliver the final blow to the Army of Light, but Bane will betray them and cost them victory. On Rakata Prime, Bane tamed a rancor and used it as a steed to travel to the Temple of the Ancients. Bane encountered no members of the Rakatan species, and it was later determined that they finally went extinct in early in 1000 BBY. Within the temple, Bane sensed a dark presence and continued searching for something for some time before finding a dusty holocron hidden on the lowest level. Using the Force, Bane unlocked the holocron to find its gatekeeper, an avatar of Darth Revan. Our old friend Revan created this holocron sometime between 3959 and 3957 while he ruled as Dark Lord of the Sith. Within the device, Revan had recorded his interpretations of Sith doctrine, a history of Sith lore, and secrets to creating a powerful weapon known as a thought bomb. Bane spent days poring over the holocron, learning all of its secrets and coming to believe that Darth Revan and Darth Malak were the platonic ideal of the Sith Master and Apprentice. In short, one to embody the power, the other to crave it. 
Darth Revan's holocron provided fodder for Bane's own preconceived notions of how the Sith should function. For example, the holocron states, quote, any master who instructs more than one apprentice in the ways of the dark side is a fool. In time, the apprentices will unite their strengths and overthrow the master. It is inevitable, axiomatic. That is why each master must have only one student, end quote. Darth Bane interpreted this in a highly reductive way, believing that only two Sith should exist at a given time, and not as Darth Revan meant it. Remember that Revan and Malak ruled over the largest and most successful Sith Empire in in galactic history until Palpatine, and they did so with the help of hundreds, if not thousands, of Sith and Dark Jedi. Indeed, the Sith had put special importance on the one master one apprentice relationship long before Darth Revan or even Naga Sadao. This is why there are occasional references that stress the importance of having two Sith that predate the creation of the Rule of Two. Possibly due to his disdain for the Brotherhood, Bane reduced all of Revan's teachings down to two. Now we obviously know that the meta reason for this for this post hoc explanation is because we needed a reason for why there were only two Sith during the prequels, but back to the narrative. Bane also interpreted Revan's admonition against having more than one leader of the Sith at a time, quite literally, taking it to mean that only one Sith master should exist, period. Of course, Darth Revan meant this in the way that his Sith Empire was built, where there was one overall Dark Lord of the Sith who had one apprentice Dark Lord, many other Sith serving under them. This idea harkened back to the Sith Empire of Naga Sadao, which also had thousands of Sith Lords under one ruler. Darth Bane also kept the veneration of the Darth title that began under Darth Revan, but had been intermittently used by the mainline Sith, going back as far as Darth and Didu, who died sometime before 5500 BBY. Bane viewed the prohibition on using the, ty- the Darth title as one of Khan's gravest sins. Based on the Jedi's long-standing and intertwined relationship with the Republic, Bane also determined that the Sith would need to work in secret to defeat the Jedi and usurp the Republic. This detail was added in order to explain why the Sith maintained their secrecy, but it's also demonstrably false. During our show, the Sith have come close to winning openly on several occasions, but couldn't finish the job. Naga Sadao and Exar Kun were betrayed by remorseful apprentices. Ulik Keldroma was betrayed by his girlfriend and later his conscience. Darth Revan had his mind wiped and was redeemed after being betrayed by his power-hungry apprentice. Finally, members of the Sith Triumvirate were simply disinterested in obtaining political power in that way. After studying everything the Holocron had to offer, Darth Bane came away convinced that he was right and that the Brotherhood must be destroyed to preserve the true way of the Sith. He then created the Order of the Sith Lords, which would follow the rule of two until the Jedi were destroyed. So it was that Darth Bane reductively plagiarized the rule of two from Darth Revan's holocron and, in doing so, made Darth Revan its spiritual precursor and ideological forebear. In a very real way, Revan's philosophy prevailed when Palpatine issued Order 66. All of that is funny because, as we know, Darth Revan was redeemed and defeated the Sith, much like Darth Vader did nearly 4,000 years later. See, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Despite Darth Bane's success in formulating the Rule of Two, he had 
two immediate problems. First, Darth Revan's holocron was unstable and disintegrated shortly after Bane finished reading it. Second, Kasim arrived on Rakata Prime with orders to kill Bane for his heresy. Kasim, a Twi'lek who used a red double-bladed lightsaber, tracked Bane to the Temple of the Ancients and confronted his former protege. Within the temple, they argued about the Brotherhood's ability to destroy the Jedi and Lord Khan's fitness to rule before igniting lightsabers and investing one another in combat. Immediately, Bane realized that Kasim always held back his true abilities while teaching others. Kasim's ferocity took Bane off guard as the Sith Blade Master switched between multiple forms of lightsaber combat effortlessly. There we go. Then Kasim played his ace in the hole by twisting the hilt of his double-bladed lightsaber and separating it into two individual lightsabers. Dual-wielding lightsabers was something totally foreign to Bane as Kasim refused to teach it to his students, claiming it was inferior. However, Kasim was secretly a master of Jarkai, and despite Bane's superior force power, it appeared his time was at hand. But Bane knew the temple's layout better than Kasim and began using that to his advantage as he retreated and ascended toward the exit. Near the entrance, they dueled, and then Bane made his break with the door in sight. Bane force-pushed his old master back and backflipped out of the temple, but misjudged his landing, and Kasim used the force to throw Bane down an external staircase. Standing in the entrance, Kasim appeared poised to kill the upstart who had claimed the forbidden title of Darth, but Bane was only momentarily discombobulated from the fall. Bane let out a blast of force energy that Kasim blocked with his own, with the force, but he didn't account for the effect the blast would have on the temple's foundation. The Temple of Ancients stood for th- more than 35,000 years, but was showing signs of wear, and the wave of energy was the final straw. The temple buckled and then began to crumble while Kasim was still standing under the front entrance. The Twi'lek Sith hadn't accounted for the temple's weight when protecting himself with the force, and was crushed as it collapsed. Darth Bane had survived, but it was a close call. Almost lovers. Following his defeat of Kasim, Bane sent a message to Khan claiming he was remorseful for killing Kasim and wished to rejoin the Brotherhood. As a gesture of good faith, Bane included the secret to creating a thought bomb which would have the power to wipe out the Jedi. Though Khan dispatched Githany to kill Bane after Fithrusan, he was intrigued by the thought bomb and began fixating on it as a way to end the war. By this time, in 1000 BBY, Khan's forces had been badly depleted, but he believed that the Brotherhood was ready to prevail after blockading Rusan. With the Army of Light done, Khan could conquer Coruscant swiftly, install Sith rule, and then bring order to the galaxy. And the damnedest thing is, if Githany had succeeded in assassinating Bane, Khan would have been right. Under the guise of diplomatic envoy, Githany met Bane on the barren world of Ambria, landing near the place where Nomi and Vima Sunrider met Jedi Master Thawne some 2,999 years beforehand. While Bane waited, he pondered the obvious problem in his plan— If he kills off the entire Brotherhood, 
Where does he find an apprentice? He briefly considers Githany and Cordris at various points, but dismisses them as being too intertwined with Khan's brotherhood. When Githany arrived, she greeted Bane with a hug, and the two shared a deep, passionate kiss, but her treachery was soon revealed. Githany had applied a lipstick laced with poisons designed to incapacitate and kill her almost lover. Bane realized this, but kept it a secret and sent Githany away, claiming he would depart for Rusan soon. But Githany was clever, and she had used one poison to mask a second, far deadlier poison called Cynox, which Bane did not discover until after she left. Almost immediately, Bane went unconscious and was near death when a father and his three young sons discovered his lightsaber. Sensing their presence through the Force, Bane used his last ounce of strength to ignite the lightsaber and kill three boys. The father broke down in despair, which Bane fed upon to give himself strength. Rising, Darth Bane took his lightsaber and murdered the grieving father in cold blood, giving him enough strength to find a healer. Return to Rusan. Luckily for Bane, a talented healer named Caleb had traveled to Ambria to aid people injured in the recent Battle of Ambria. However, the healer refused to aid the Sith Lord after seeing all the damage caused by the Sith during the war. Bane attempted to mind a mind trick, but Caleb but Caleb's will was too strong and the Dark Lord of the Sith was near death. But as was so often the case after he joined the Sith, Bane got lucky. At the last moment, Bane felt the presence of Caleb's daughter, Sarah, hiding in a secret cellar under the house. Finding her, Bane began torturing her through the Force. At this, Caleb agreed to heal Darth Bane in return for leaving his daughter alone. In short order, Bane, uh, Caleb healed Bane of the Synox poisoning, leaving the Sith Lord revitalized. As he left, Bane thought about killing Caleb, but decided to leave him just in case he ever needed such powerful healing again. By the time Darth Bane departed Ambria and returned to Rusan, it was mid-1000 BBY. The Sith were shocked to see Bane alive, and his presence greatly undermined the sway Khan held over the Brotherhood of Darkness. Bane mocked the members of the Brotherhood for using military strategy and blockades to defeat the Army of Light, which he deemed cowardice. Instead, Bane offered to help the Brotherhood defeat the Jedi once and for all by summoning a Force Wave to wipe out their enemies to wipe out their enemies on Rusan. Despite the mutual acrimony, Khan agreed, and they decided to launch to launch the attack at nightfall, which will mark the beginning of the Sixth Battle of Rusan. The Seventh Battle of Rusan happens the very next day. The Last Stand of the Old Republic Though you may not yet realize it, these are the final days of the Old Republic. For 24,053 years, the Old Republic has stood, for better or worse, at the apex of galactic civilization. For 24,053 years, roughly six times the length of recorded human history, the Old Republic has reigned continuously. For 24,053 years, the Old Republic has maintained the status quo, rarely undertaking major political overhauls and never addressing social questions. For 24,053 years, the Jedi Order have been the defenders of peace and justice for the Old Republic. For 24,053 years, 
The Old Republic has held firm in the face of a dozen galaxy-spanning wars, uncountable superweapons, and unspeakable evil. For 24,053 years, the Old Republic has been both a force for good and has looked the other way while unspeakable evils were committed. For 24,053 years, the Old Republic has been a land of contrasts. And tomorrow, in mid-1000 BBY, the Old Republic will make its last stand after 24,053 years. We'll leave the narrative there for now, but next episode, we will witness the full collapse of the Old Republic and discover the inescapable truth. For the galaxy to live, the Old Republic must die. And with that, thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we'll cover the 6th and 7th Battles of Rusan, the Rusan reformations that followed, and Darth Bane's secret per- perpetuation of the Sith. Follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you. <laughs>